Good morning. Uh, I said this first service, I'll say it again. You can say what you want about our kids' ministry and the group of kids going to camp. Might not be the biggest group at um, uh, the campground, but they will for sure arrive in the coolest vehicle. They're going to be taking the Go Fast, Don't Die bus that's out there, and I think that's the coolest thing ever. So uh, be praying for them. Um, Gretchen and Samantha, they're, they're going to be counselors, and it's uh, yeah, just as Sam said, just for praying that, that the Lord moves uh, and does a work in their life that just leaves them forever changed. So we're in, um, uh, so I think, week eight of our study through the book of Colossians. And this is, uh, as of right now, the longest sermon series that I've ever done. Uh, going will be nine weeks. Uh, typically, six, seven weeks is kind of the max. And we intended for this to be a four-week study, but we got into the text and just really felt a sense from the Lord to just take our time to not rush through this book, and it has been, for me, uh, super just enriching and powerful learning. Uh, I mean, this is a a text I was familiar with, but every time I jump in it, I feel like the Lord teaches me something new week in and week out. And so we jump into uh, this week with, if there is a difficult part or a part that I like the least in the entire book, it's chapter 3. Because chapter 3, Paul goes from kind of theoretical Christianity to to practical application Christianity. He goes from talking about things like in ideas to, to, to telling us how to live. And if I'm being honest, I don't like when people tell me how to live at all. And so I get uncomfortable with this. Courtney and I... Um, we, we, we were married, and uh, like a lot of newlyweds, we had nothing. Uh, we were broke. We didn't have a clue. Uh, we, we had moved to Texas, and uh, over time had felt like um, it was time to, to step into home ownership. Again, we had no money. We had no sense, but we were like, we're going to do it. And so uh, I think we only toured one house. If we toured more houses, I don't remember them. I think it was the one, the first one. Yep. Uh, and and we, we were so blinded by this idea of being a homeowner that we walked in and, and we just didn't see the mess that we were walking into. Like our first indication should have been like we walked into the house, like the, the front door was, was an interior door, like a hollow door that you would put on a closet or a bedroom, like that was the front door. Uh, we didn't notice the foundation issues, the fact that none of the doors actually shut. Uh, I, for whatever reason, didn't notice that the whole house smelled like cat pee. That uh, just slipped my mind or just passed by me. Uh, like It was an absolute disaster, but we bought it, we were excited, and we had, we had plans to, to just do, do really cool things with it. Um, again, we had no money, we had no sense. Not sure how we were going to do it, but that was the plan. So we, we get into the house, and, and the, one of the biggest projects that we did was renovating the guest bathroom. Um, and it was, so any, anytime Courtney, Courtney got pregnant, like her nesting was renovating and painting things. And so this was that project. I think she was pregnant with Grayson or Harper, not for sure. Uh, but, but we get into it and, and we, we paint the bathroom a different color. She finds a vanity on Facebook that we bring in. We get a new sink. Uh, thanks to YouTube, I was able to plumb the faucet and everything was set up and it looked brand new. And, and there was just one more thing that I had to do. We were going to hang a mirror over the sink. And so I, I, you know, you use a stud finder, we know where the studs are, and I was just going to tack it in with the nail because it was a relatively small light mirror, and I, I kind of get things lined up, and I set the nail up, and I take the hammer, and I, I tap to get ready, and then I, I do uh, just, you know, hit it, and, and the nail and the hammer go through the wall. 
not because of my force, but because the drywall had been deteriorated. The only thing that was keeping the wall together was layers, years and years of paint and the paper on the drywall. Like, what in the world? And so I, I push it and it crumbles some more and I look and the stud that was there looks a little bit different and so I touch it and it just disintegrates. Termites. I mean, just sick to my stomach, right? Like I had I spent weeks trying to get this bathroom and it was the, the final touch. All I needed to do was hang the mirror and, and this happened. So, so I had a choice to make, right? Do I putty and spackle the hole, paint it and move on and pretend like it didn't happen? Or do I tear down the entire wall? Because that's what was required. So we, we live in a world, and I think what Paul is addressing here in chapter 3, that the church or members of the church were finding themselves in situations when their relationship with Jesus, uh, they, were, they were spackle and paint Christians. Where they, they, on the outside, looked the part, but on the inside, they were, they were rotting and deteriorating. Now, in both of those instances, at whether or not I tore down the wall or I just spackled and painted it, like from the outside looking in, you would have no idea that, that, that behind the wall was rotting wood and just a mess. You would have no idea. It, it, we step into this relationship with Jesus Christ, and, and, and to be honest— you have no idea whether or not I'm a, I'm a spackle and paint Christian or a demo and rebuilt Christian. But the difference is important. So important that Paul is just going to stress this over and over and over again in this book, that, that something needs to change when you step into a relationship with Christ more than what you look on the outside and more than what you call yourself by name. And so in chapter 3, verse 5, he kind of walks through what this looks like. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up with me. And we're just going to walk through um, this, this idea of what it looks like to, to, to live as a Christian, to live in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So Paul starts, he says, "...put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature." sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. The cause of these, the wrath of God, is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. He lists all of the things that we were, that we are to die from. It says, put to death. Put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature. And so, so if you flip back over to chapter 2, verse 13, Paul, Paul uses the same terminology. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. And so, so here we see that, that we're either dead in our sins or, or we're dead to our sins. He says, put to death the things that you used to struggle with. Put to death the things that you deal with. The anger, the malice, the rage, the, the, the greed, the, the lustful heart. All of those things need to be 
put to death. So the Christian term for that is repent. I've heard it growing up all the time. Repent of your sins. Repent and be saved. The idea of repentance is that we, we, we step into a relationship with Jesus Christ and then we, we, we turn 180 degrees away from the life that we used to live and we begin to run towards Jesus, which is, which is great. And really at first, for me, I had no issues with that. But what happens over time is that 180 degree begins to get closer and closer and closer and closer to 360 degrees. And before I know it, I am right back where I started living the life that I was trying to overcome. I think the church in Colossae is dealing with the same. The reality is, is that you should be different after your relationship, after you step into your relationship with Jesus than you were before. Something should be different. He continues, he says, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with, this pra- with its practices and have put on a new self which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. So Paul begins to give us an idea on, on what's different. So, okay, you tell me, Paul, that I have to get rid of anger, that I have to get rid of rage, that I don't need to deal with greed, that I shouldn't have a lustful heart. Like, you, I understand that. That's all really good and well to hear those things, but how in the world do I live that out? Because I'm trying my best here, and I can't seem to figure it out. No matter how hard I try, I get myself in a situation in traffic where like I, you get the road rage or your kids make you mad and all of a sudden you lose your temper or, or, or you, you find yourself gossiping like, like, okay, how do I do this? Again, I understand what you want me to do, God. How do I live this out? And Paul says that this is, this is it right here. You are being renewed. Notice it's not you were renewed. Notice it's not you know, that one time where God renewed you, it's you are being renewed. There is an active work inside of you that once you step into a relationship with the Holy Spirit, and if you allow him to, he begins to demolish the wall that is your life, and he begins to build it up slowly but surely over time. Where, where today you're closer to Jesus than you were yesterday, and tomorrow, by the grace of God, I'm going to be closer to him than I am today. You are being renewed. And Paul uses a passive voice here. He's not saying that you are renewing yourself. He's not saying, listen, Aaron, I need you to take care of this. I need you to figure this out. You are really struggling. You're not representing me well. I need you to renew yourself. That's not what he's saying. He's like, no, no, no. You will be, if you allow me, renewed. It's a work that's done not by me, but by the grace of God. Created. A new person. The old self taken off. The, the wall is knocked down. And piece by piece, it's built the way it was supposed to be. So what does that look like? What does it look like to, 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 to live this out? What does it look like to, and, and Paul's really, he's, he's modeling what he said in Galatians, that we've been crucified with Christ. It's I who no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. Okay, how do I Live. What is it supposed to look like? Chapter 3, verse 12, he said, Therefore, because of the renewal 
As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if you have a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So so this is what renewal looks like. This is what should be the result of my relationship with Jesus Christ. So as it turns out, stepping into a relationship with Christ isn't just a free pass in eternity. Now, that certainly is part of it, that we are saved by the grace of God, and because of that, we get to be in his presence after we die. But, but there, there's something on this side of eternity that, that Jesus Christ desperately wants us to have. He said, you, because of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you're not going to be controlled by anger or rage or malice. Greed isn't going to be your calling card. This is how people are going to know you. The things that, that, that inwardly define you are going to be outwardly expressed by my work inside of your life. Kindness, humility, gentleness. I think it's an interesting idea. We've talked about this before, but when I read that, I think, um, I think sometimes we, we hear gentleness as being like a pushover, someone who just, right, just steps aside and lets everyone get their way, but I don't think that's what Paul means, and I, I certainly don't believe that's what Jesus modeled. Gentleness is standing on the truth without pushing anybody away from it. It's finding a way to love even in places of disagreement. We, we hear this uh, and, and immediately we go to, well, Jesus flipped over tables in the temple. I am too. And we forget that Jesus sat at a lot more tables than he flipped. Gentle. Patient. Forgiveness. Like, like any hope that I have of forgiving as the Lord forgave me, comes from the Lord. I'm a grudge holder by nature. Like when I'm a, when I'm a spackle in paint, when I'm a putty in paint Christian, this is impossible for me. I might say I forgive you, but man, I hold that grudge in my heart. But when I allow the Lord to renew me, when I allow him to demolish the wall, as inconvenient as it is, then all of a sudden that becomes a reality. All of a sudden the things that I can only hope for become my truth, not by what I'm doing, but by what the Lord is doing through me. My fear, my fear, and this keeps me up at night, is that we live in a world and we, we are a part of a church, not Ignite Wesleyan Church, but Big C Church, that's full of putty and paint Christians. Men and women who have acknowledged the grace of God, that they might even profess him as Lord and Savior of their life, but, but they've stopped the work right there. They, they, they've, they've acknowledged that there's a termite problem, that the wall needs to be rebuilt, but they prevent the Lord from doing his work. And so we, we look pretty on the outside. We, we look the part. We say the right things. We put money in the offering plate. We check the box. But on the inside, we're crumbling and falling apart 
piece by piece. And I get it. Totally get it. The idea of of being rebuilt, like it is an inconvenient process. This is hard. It is not fun. It is not, demolition is, is never fun. Rebuilding is never fun. Uh, having to, 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 to let go of things that you were really comfortable with, like that's not fun. It would be very easy. It's actually easier for me just, just to slap on a coat of paint and say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to leave it as it is. But when we do that, we, we miss what Jesus intends for us on this side of eternity. He, he, the Lord, desires for you and I to be dead to our sins. Not from them, not in them, to them. His desire is for you to be able to overcome them. So again, it's really good in theory. How in the world do I live this out? What is it I'm supposed to do? Because we say this week in and week out. If you just give more of yourself to Jesus, if you just, if you just walk this walk, you're going to be fine. Practically, I need some steps because I, I'm struggling. So Paul gives the church some guidance. And I love this. Verse 15, he says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all the wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So let's break that down a little bit because Paul's giving us lots of steps. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. So so where do we start? The first place that you have to start is the reconciliation with your heart. You have to know Jesus Christ. You have to be in a relationship with him. You have to to make him Lord and Savior of your life. You have to, to ask him to forgive you of your sins. Like, you can't do anything beyond that unless you do that step. And if you don't know how to do that or you're struggling with that, let's talk after church because we'll figure it out. You know Jesus. You are in a relationship with him. Then once you know Jesus, Paul says, verse 15 again says, or excuse me, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. So, 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 so you know Jesus, you know him personally, and then, then he says, well, then you need to dig a little bit deeper, and you probably should know about Jesus. This is when you dive into the word of God. You've stepped into the relationship. Maybe you don't have it all figured out, but that's when you start doing the work. You dive into his word. You understand how he lived. You appreciate what he taught. You go back to the beginning of the story and figure out, and you see God's love from the beginning of creation to right now. You begin to know about Jesus. You make that your life's mission to seek him, to know him more. Then he says, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. So if I know Jesus and I know about Jesus, what's next? So I believe we're called to grow together in Jesus. To grow together. To to teach and admonish one another 
We are not meant to do this alone. We're not. I hear lots of people, and we live in a place where it's really easy to say, you know what, like I, I worship better in the mountain. And I get it. Some of my most impactful moments of worship are when I'm alone in solitude in God's creation. And that definitely should be part of the equation. But it can't be the only place that we grow. We're made to do life together. You and I are made to relate. We're made to study together. When I fall down, you're supposed to pick me up. And when you fall down, Lord willing, I'll be able to pick you up too. We are supposed to do this together, to grow deeper together. You were not meant to do this thing in solitude. The renewal that God wants to do in a lot of ways is a group activity. There's power in that. Once you've grown together, he says, singing to God, verse 16, with gratitude in your hearts. We, we are to worship Jesus together. We, we do um, this thing here on Sunday mornings. It's very intentional. Lots of time and prayer and thought goes into everything that happens. It's not a performance. It's not supposed to be a performance. This is the time of the week where we gather together and we worship our living Lord, where we sing praises to him, where we pray together, when we study together, we're supposed to worship him. Any hope about, that I have of renewing or being renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come through my willingness to step into real, life-changing worship. But here's the thing, and this is where I think sometimes we miss the mark. If you're worshiping one hour a week, 52 weeks a year, which I think is a stretch for most of us, 52 weeks a year, there's 8,700 8, and something hours in a year. My math, and I'm not super good at it, but my, I think it's about half a tenth of a percent. If you worship one hour every Sunday of the year, friends, that's not enough. It's, you can't expect the Lord to do what he desires to do in your life if you're only giving him an hour a week. We're, we're to worship. Other places in Scripture says that we should worship without, without see, like just continue on and on and on and on. So what does that look like in your life? Where are moments that you have, you have set out to, to actively worship when you're intentionally worshiping? I, I am a I am a horrible singer. We, we've talked about this. Like, I am tone deaf. Uh, it is bad. But man, when I'm alone in my truck and the windows are rolled up and no one's around, I blast it and I worship and I sing and I get emotional. When I'm working, like, there are times where, where I figure out a place to, like, and for me, it's music. Maybe it's something else for you. Like, I, I worship. And, and when I worship, you know what happens? Like everything else that I seem to be dealing with that's causing me issues seems to wash away. It's an incredible thing. To, to know Jesus, to know about Jesus, to grow together in Jesus, to, to worship Jesus together. And then if, if you can do those things, then that this verse here in Colossians that we love to quote, 
And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Then, I believe, that's when we begin to live your life for Jesus. And this here, if we get to this place, if you get to this place, we change the world. This is when you're in the classroom and you're figuring out a way to glorify Jesus and how you teach your students. This is when you're on the ranch and you're, you're sorting cows or, or throwing hay. You figure out a way to glorify Jesus in the hospital, in the mine, the radio station, the government building, wherever it is you find yourself. If you can figure this out, this is how you, and when, you change the world. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is where we are called to be. That's why this is so important. The only way this happens is if you and I figure out a way to stop being putty and paint Christians. We have to be willing to allow the Lord to demolish what was there, as uncomfortable as it is, and rebuild it the way he intended it to be. We have to be willing to give more of ourselves to Jesus Christ every single day. Let's pray. Father, I, um, I thank you for, I thank you for your love. I thank you for just your word and how I, something that was written so long ago is so incredibly applicable to us today. How, how you seem to speak directly to us through these words. Father, my prayer for me personally and for us as a church is that we allow you to do the work that you so desperately desire to do in our hearts and through our lives. That, that we would stop simply playing a part and, and, and as uncomfortable as it is, that we would allow you to, to rebuild, to recreate, to renew. As, as scary as it is, I ask, Father, that you tear us down and build us back up. In Jesus' name.